Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 252 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast for Wednesday, April 25th, 2012. On tonight's show, just one week until the big, huge AAFP NCSC meeting, which is one of the largest family medicine advocacy meetings of the entire year. Very excited about that. Tonight, I'm going to be giving you some tips for uh, success at the NCSC meeting. Yes, some tips that you should know about. Also, the uh, Buffett rule for prostate screening. What do I mean by that? Where is the outrage? Where is the outrage for his doctor? I'm talking to you, all of those people out there, you caring, wisely people. I'll be talking about that. Uh, all that and a lot more coming up on episode 252 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the American Academy of Family Physicians, Dr. Glenn Stream. Um, this year, one of my commitments and, and a great interest is to be more engaged with you as leaders, chapter leaders, uh, and, and our frontline membership. Uh, on, on Monday, a Twitter handle, I'm privileged to be the first one to hold, uh, at AFP Prez, P-R-E-Z, I already have 29 followers. I feel so proud. Um, I have a long, long way to go to catch up to uh, our current student board member, Kevin Bernstein, who has a little over 1,000, um, and our, uh, our king of family medicine social media, uh, Mike Sevilla, who has nearly 7,000 uh, members. Medicine and social media. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. I'm your host. My name is Mike Savella, the hardest working family physician in social media right now. Why am I saying that? Well, you know, because I am just really excited about this meeting coming up. Doing five shows, maybe I think it's five shows, in the midst of 10 days leading up to the huge, enormous AEFP NCSC meeting happening one week from today. Uh, and uh, so we'll be talking about that in a little bit. What is this show about? Uh, other than the meeting, you know, I tell people this is uh, family medicine. <laughs> this is family medicine. This is social media through the eyes of a family physician. I encourage you to check out my digital library of blog posts, videos, and podcasts at Family Medicine Rocks. Dot com and uh, shout out to all 8,833 people following me on Twitter on the road to 9,000. Hopefully, we can reach that by next week. And 
Also, shout out to all 374 people who are following the uh, Facebook page. It's kind of leveled out a little bit, so hopefully be able to get that up to 400 by the time next week's meeting comes along. Today is Wednesday, April 25th, 2012. It is 9 p.m. Eastern time, and here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters here, uh, the uh, weather is uh, partly cloudy and feels like 56 degrees, a lot warmer than our previous show. So how's your week been going there, uh, kids? I was on call uh, last night and uh, running on uh, not a lot of sleep, and as I put on my Twitter and Facebook uh, today, uh, I did leave my uh, filter at home, my audio filter. I did say some stuff uh, today in the office probably that I shouldn't have, <laughs> and um uh, we'll see what happens during the uh, course of this show. Um, I did see, let's see, who was that out there uh, today? That was uh, Greg Matthews Shamuz on uh, Twitter uh, this morning said, Note to self, do not miss the show tonight. He's promising fireworks, and I'm probably going to be giving a big letdown to that, but we'll see uh, We'll see during uh, segment three of the uh, show here tonight. Uh, but, uh, yeah, just kind of recapping the next uh, week, the next uh, few days here. Uh, for those of you who are tuning in uh, for the Robin Lou interview that was rescheduled until uh, Sunday night, uh, we had some scheduling difficulties, but she's still going to come on the show. Uh, actually, uh, I've been trying to get her on the show for a year, and uh, <laughs> our schedules just haven't matched up. So she will be here um, in a few days, that will be, I think, show number 254 uh, for those people who are keeping score at home. Uh, but tomorrow, tomorrow, Thursday, April 26th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central, uh, I will uh, have a show with my uh, good friend, Dr. Jerry Tolbert, who will be a first-time attendee to this NCSC meeting. I will be giving his NCSC uh, orientation uh, right here on the radio show, so that should be exciting. And we'll have some other topics that we'll be uh, talking about, uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, and Robin Lou's coming in here on Sunday. Um, and also the convener himself, the the, the conference chair, uh, Jay Lee, will be here next week um, to give us his opinion and overview uh, and his vision uh, for the meeting. And as I teased in the last uh, episode, uh, I'm still trying to score a very exclusive, exciting interview uh, before the meeting next week. And uh, I'm still having my fingers crossed for that, see if we can make all of that happen. Uh, so uh, what I'll do here is uh, I'm going to be talking about NCSC and the tips. I think these are five tips for success at NCSC. But first, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio for having me be a featured host here on the network. I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005. And if you're curious, yes, I am a real doctor. I am a family physician in full-time private practice here in a beautiful northeastern Ohio. And uh, we will uh, take our break here, and then we will continue. If you're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, my name is Mike Sevilla. This is the unofficial podcast of the Family Medicine Revolution. Just Google FM Revolution uh, for more information. Also giving a big shout-out to the uh, Family Medicine uh, uh, Education Consortium. You can get there by going to fmec.org and uh, their annual meeting coming up uh, in the fall here. And this podcast is also a member of the Proba Network of Podcasts at uh, promednetwork.com. 
and we'll be right back. Family Medicine's leading voice in social media. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Savilla. And uh, next week, one week from today, will be the start for me for the AAFP-NCSC meeting, the National Conference of Special Constituencies, one of the largest advocacy meetings for family medicine of the entire year. And uh, we... uh, I've already uh, talked to some people, and uh, the registration uh, is near record levels, and uh, hopefully be able to uh, reach new attendance records, Uh, mainly because I'm going to be there, mainly because I'm going to be speaking on social media uh, a week from today, and uh, it's just going to be awesome. It's going to be something people have never seen before. It's going to be something that I can completely hype up and uh, get people very disappointed in my presentation. But uh, now what I'd like to do, I'd like to give you some tips, especially people who are first uh, attending the meeting. These are five tips. At least I've counted them in my head. Five tips (laughs) on how you can be successful at uh, the NCSC meeting and any kind of policymaking meeting or advocacy meeting, even if you're not in family medicine. I think these, these tips here, that will be very beneficial to you. So the first tip, the first tip how you can be effective at a policy-making meeting, at an advocacy meeting, ask yourself, what are you passionate about? Duh. And I ask that because, you know, for something like family medicine, family medicine it has a wide range of topics, of issues, of things of, that people are passionate about, things that people are upset about, uh, and uh, you just have to find, you have to ask yourself, you have to put the mirror up against your face and say, what are you passionate about? It could be, you know, something about policy. It could be something about, you know, being uh, mad or upset at the government. It could be uh, mad or upset at insurance companies or attorneys or any of that type of stuff. Some people, it's clinical issues, you know, things like childhood obesity or women's issues, or religious issues, or um, you know anything like that. You know, maybe there's something specifically in your community that you would like to bring up to a national level. You have to ask yourself. You have to look at yourself. You have to look at yourself, your community, your patients, and say, "Hey, what can I try to change?" And and bring those issues with you. You know, bring that passion with you. You know, ask yourself, you know, you know, what do I really want to share with this group? What do I really want to try to articulate? 
what do I really want to try to express for myself, for my community, and for my patients? And for most people, it's going to be a list of things, which is good. You know, I mean, some people, they bring one issue, uh, which makes themselves one-dimensional. But a lot of people, they bring, you know, a handful of issues. Some things that are they're really upset about, some people uh, or some issues that are, they're really uh, passionate about, some issues that they're so, so passionate about, some issues that they're indifferent about, uh, and they bring all those with them. They bring all those with them to a policymaking meeting like this and say, hey, this is kind of where I stand with things. That's the first step. The first step is to ask yourself what you're passionate about. The second step, the, the second step into uh, uh, having a successful meeting is ask yourself why. Why are you passionate about these? And in this manner, it will help in your mind. It will help in your mind articulate why you feel what you feel. Because if you want to try to persuade somebody, if you want to try to persuade a group of people, if you want to try to persuade you know, anybody, you know, not only do you have to be passionate about an issue, you have to be able to express and articulate it in a way that people understand uh, and that people can at least, you know, understand what you're talking about so they can agree or disagree or ask you for more information. You know, coming in, you know, just with, you know, a, you know some simple ideas, things that you have not, uh, you know, thought out fully, you're not going to be able to to convince anybody, you're not going to be able to get anybody on your side if you haven't really sat down, you know, take notes, you know, and, and spell things out and say, hey, this is why I feel what I feel about this particular issue. So the first step, you know, ask yourself what you're passionate about. The second step, ask yourself why you're passionate about that. The third step, the third step people uh, skip usually. The third step is uh be a good listener what does that mean that means that you know there's going to be people that agree with you and there's going to be people that disagree with you but instead of trying to yell over them instead of trying to call them names try to listen what other people are saying especially the people who are disagreeing with you and especially at a meeting like this, the NCSC, you know, for the AAFP, I know that's a lot of letters. I'll slow down. But at this NCSC meeting, this is a friendly type of group. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we pretty much try to get along, you know, but obviously we do not agree about everything. Because if we did, then it would not be so much fun. <laughs> We disagree about things. We disagree to some degree about some things. Some people, you know, uh, fervently <laughs> disagree. Some people are like, eh, I disagree a little bit. But when you talk to people, when you present your case, you know, do it well. But when people are presenting their case, especially if it's something that you don't know much about or if it's something that you're indifferent about, you know, learn to be a good listener. Family physicians, good family physicians like everybody going to this meeting, good family physicians already have this skill. But we can always improve upon this skill, you know, because, you know, when, when we present our point of view, we're really, you know, excited about it. Um, but we have to step back a little bit when other people are talking and to listen to what they're saying and to try to understand what they're saying. And if, they, if you don't understand what they're saying, to ask questions 
to clarify what they're saying. This goes back to step number two for you. Why do you feel the way you feel? And try to flesh out some of these issues, some of these questions in your mind. And, and that way you will be a more effective uh, delegate. You'll be a more effective person at a meeting. So reviewing. So step number one, so be passionate. Uh, you know, ask yourself, what are you passionate about? What are you upset about? Step number two, why do you feel the way you feel, uh, which is a big step. Step number three, you know, be a good listener and, and listen to what other people are saying. Step number four, and this is a tough step too. Step number four, sharpen your point by looking out, by seeking out people who disagree with you. That's right. I'm saying that. Look for, seek out people who have a different point of view, prefer, preferably the opposite point of view that you do as you are you know, trying to convince people of this, especially at this policymaking meeting where you're making resolutions, you're writing resolutions. You want to anticipate, you want to try to anticipate what the questions are going to be, especially people who are diametrically opposed to what you believe in on this issue. And you try to anticipate those questions. You try to uh, uh, prepare answers uh, to those, you know, questions that are going to be coming up. And you do that by by uh, looking out for people, by seeking out people who you respect, but who you disagree with or who disagree with you. And like I said before, at this meeting, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, we're all family physicians, you know, there is a mutual respect uh, that we have, you know, uh, toward each other at this meeting. Even if we disagree with somebody on something, I have had a lot of people come up to me at this meeting and other policy and advocacy meetings and say, Mike, you know, I know that you don't uh, agree with this at all, or I know that you don't fully agree with this, you agree with part of this, you know, help me sharpen my point. Help me uh, uh, present my argument in a little bit, um, you know, more effective manner. I'm not asking you to agree with me, but I am asking you to help me present my argument the best that I can. So step number four is to look, actually look for people who disagree with you to try to sharpen your point. So step number one, ask yourself what you're passionate about. Step number two uh, <laughs> I already forgot. Step number two, ask yourself why you're passionate about this subject or topic. Step number three, be a good listener. Step number four, sharpen your point by asking people who you disagree with uh, to help you know, help you with this point, help you sharpen your point, help you, help you make it as best as you can. And, of course, number five, the final step is to have fun. <laughs> I know. It seems like a cop-out number five. It seems like I couldn't think of anything else for number five. No. If people know me, people that know me know that I like to have a good time. I know I, I like to work hard, but I like to play hard too. And at these meetings, you know, we could sometimes, some people, I've seen it, and we've all seen it at these type of meetings, people just are yelling at each other, you know, people are just like going back and forth. At the end of the session, at the end of the day, uh, we all go out and have dinner or go out and have drinks. <laughs> <laughs> it is just such a good time. Uh, so, so those are the tips. 
Those are the tips for you to be a successful person at one of these advocacy meetings, at one of these policy-making meetings, is to ask yourself, number one, what are you passionate about? Number two, uh, why are you passionate about this issue? Number three, be a good listener. Number four, sharpen your point by looking out for, by seeking out people who disagree with you to try to help your point, to help you try to present your argument a little bit better. And, of course, number five, have a lot of fun. And I'm going to have a lot of fun uh, next week at this NCSC meeting. So I'm going to do, we're going to take a break. And uh, topic two is your AAFP news briefing. Just a couple of stories, one or two, well, maybe a few stories coming up right after the break. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast live here on a Wednesday night here on the Block Talk Radio Network. My name is Mike Sibilla, and uh, we'll be right back. That's right, the unofficial podcast of the Family Medicine Revolution. Just uh, Google FM Revolution for more details. So topic two, this here this is your uh, AAFP news update, and uh, here it is. So here is a blog post here from the AAFP Leader Voices blog, uh, dated uh, Tuesday, April 24, 2012. Uh, This is by uh, Dr. Richard Madden, Richard Madden, MD uh, of Bellin, New Mexico, a second-year member of the AAFP Board of Directors. He's he's a practicing family physician and uh, assistant clinical professor of family community medicine at the University of New Mexico. School of Medicine in Albuquerque. And the uh, the title of his uh, post here is Planning Ahead Makes End-of-Life Care Easier for Everyone. And like uh, last week, I'm not going to go through this whole thing, but I will read selected parts of this. It starts out by saying, too often planning for end-of-life is left to the end of a life. Well, that's stressful but that stressful, chaotic time is often too late for a patient to make his or her wishes clear, and difficult decisions are left to be made and sometimes argued about by their relatives. But it doesn't have to be that way. He continues, one of my severely disabled patients who was in his 30s recently died after a lengthy illness. His mother chose not to prolong his life with a feeding tube and watched her son waste away. She was at peace with that painful but correct decision because the family knew what was coming and had time to think it through and was prepared when the time came. My patient died peacefully, painlessly, and without fruitless interventions because of advanced 
planning. And he goes through some of this stuff here. And uh, um, he reviews a couple of things, well, actually a few things here. In the uh, area of advanced directives, advanced directives are uh, things where people, where you, where patients, make their wishes known about what you would like and what you would not like done um, at the end of your life, especially if you're terminal, meaning that you know there's no um, uh, chance for recovery uh, for a an illness uh, that is going to take your life. And he goes on in this article, he reviews uh, three of these advanced directives. The first one is uh, Five Wishes. Five Wishes is an advanced directive that covers more issues than a typical living will or power of attorney document. The document, which meets uh, legal requirements in more than 40 states, lets physicians and the family, uh, let the physicians and fam- patients' family know the following. Who should make healthcare decisions for a patient when they can't? Medical treatment they want or don't want. How comfortable they want to be, how they want to be treated, and what they want loved ones to know. And I've seen that. That's uh, that's something that has been used uh, and is, uh, like I said, uh, it meets legal requirements in four states. Another advanced directive is something called, quote, let me decide, unquote, is written by a geriatrician. It's an advanced directive book, and each book contains a four-page form designed to clearly state the patient's wishes as well as a sample form. The document is designed to give individuals the opportunity to choose different levels of treatment according to his or her wishes. Number two, relieve family and friends from the burden of decision-making. And number three, guide physicians making important decisions when family members are unavailable. And the last one he talks about here is called POLST, P-O-L-S-T, which stands for Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Uh, it's a form that can uh, converts patient preferences into written uh, medical records based on the healthcare professional's conversation with the patient and or proxy. POLST programs have been implemented in at least a dozen states and are in development in 20 more. And for me, you know, I've heard all of these, uh, the most, the, the most uh, familiar uh, I'm with is, is the pulsed form, and because uh, we, we were looking at that at our own hospital, as far as is that something that you know our hospital should do. In the state of Ohio, uh, just to let people know, there is a standard form that is used uh, that was uh, passed by the state legislature uh, for uh, DNR or do not resuscitate, and uh, it is confusing here in Ohio, like it is in other states. But there is a state form uh, that physicians fill out if patients. Uh, desire uh, to uh, limit the heroic measures that they would want to have done, you know, like putting your, you know, putting the patient on a ventilator or restarting their heart if it stops, um, you know, shocking a patient using electricity, that type of thing. And uh, that's been in the state for a long time. There's been a lot of discussions um, at the state level and um, you know, among, you know, health professionals about, you know, should we adopt one of these other type of forms, like a pulsed form or five wishes or something like that. And that debate continues onward and, um, you know, probably is not going to have any kind of, uh, you know, uh, adequate solution, but at least we have something right now that is kind of um, um, state verified or, or uh, you know, has the blessing of a state and of the state in that, you know, it is a uniform, uniform form that all hospitals use. 
Uh, but this is a very good article. It's a very good blog post. It is from the AAFP Leader Voices uh, blog. Uh, it is at aafp.org. And the title again here is uh, Planning Ahead Makes End-of-Life Care Easier for Everyone, and that is from Tuesday, April 24th, uh, by Dr. Richard Madden. Um, a couple other stories here I'd like to uh, talk about. And this is from the, the state chapter. This is from my uh, good old Ohio Academy of Family Physicians state chapter. And I'm going to try to do some stories for them every once in a while here. And uh, just want to promote something here and uh, see um, see how uh, all you people out there respond to it. It is uh, the uh, Ohio Academy launches the uh, new uh, Patient Center Medical Home Leadership Webinar Series. The OEFP members and practice teams are invited to encourage and participate in a three-part webinar series designed to help their officers engage, transform, and sustain their efforts toward becoming a patient-centered medical home. The uh, first one uh, is, will be on June 6, uh, 2012, entitled uh, Managing Practice Change, Implementing and Sustaining Transformational Change. It is from 12.15 p.m. to 1 p.m., and it is from uh, TransferMed. Uh, and I think each one of these uh, webinars are from the uh, TransferMed uh, people, TransferMed.com, I believe. And uh, yeah, I might check that out. You know, th- th- there's all kinds of these uh, uh, patient-centered medical home, you know, um, uh, continuing education or webinars or trying to help physicians, trying to help practices, um, you know, learn more about patient-centered medical home and how to implement it, you know, into their own practice. And I'm glad that the Ohio Academy of Family Physicians is uh, taking a role to uh, try to educate their members um, on that with this three-part webinar series. Uh, there's also another program I want to uh, mention here for the Ohio Academy of Family Physicians. It is their uh, uh, leadership and advocacy training seminar on Saturday, May 19th. This is named after uh, C. David uh, Paracas, a, a longtime friend um, of the Academy and our lobbyist uh, in Columbus, Ohio, at the State House. And the title of this article is uh, Medicaid Director and Medicaid Medical Director, both to present at the OEFP Leadership and Advocacy Training Seminar uh, May 19th. The topics uh, to be addressed include uh, changing Medicaid from a pair of services to a pair of quality and outcomes, also Medicaid health homes, which is similar to the patient center medical home concept. Not all the details are the same. Uh, integrating uh, care a delivery system for dual eligibles and recontracting of Medicaid managed care plans. And, uh, you know, like in other states, you know, here in Ohio, uh, the uh, Medicaid system, you know, is uh, I wouldn't say controversial. I mean, it is broke. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of practices, including our practice at this point, that does not accept Medicaid. That was a very difficult uh, decision for our office uh, to make, which I've talked about on the show a few times. Uh, but this will be interesting. Um, at the state level on May 19th for the leadership and advocacy training seminar for the Medicaid people to come and uh, come and speak. If people wanting more information on either of those events, the webinar or the training seminar, just go to ohioafp.org, ohioafp.org for more information. Uh, what I'll do is that will take another uh, short break here. And uh, after the break, uh, get ready, kids. I'm going to be uh, getting on my high horse. I'm going to be getting on my soapbox and uh, talking about hypocrisy. I'm going to talk about asking the question, where is the outrage? <laughs> this, uh, just I think it was just this week, uh, Warren Buffett, the businessman, 
uh, announced that uh, he uh, had and is being treated for prostate cancer. And uh, as many people know, well, I, I will, uh, I'll take my break here and I will outline the issue here for all of you. So uh, we'll be right back here on the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Sevilla. Uh, check out the uh, digital library, my digital library of blog posts, uh, podcasts, and videos at familymedicinerocks.com. Also, uh, hey, friend us up on the uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash famedrocks. And follow me on Twitter at uh, Dr. Mike Sevilla. Dr. Mike Savella, and uh, we will be right back after this short break. I gotta find some. Oh, here we go. We'll be right back. <laughs> Miami Sound Machine, Big Will, King of the Hill, huh? <laughs> of a family physician. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Sevilla. Uh, so let's uh, get into this here, kids. This was kind of triggered. Uh, my thought on this was triggered by my good friend, Dr. Kevin Foe, uh, who is uh, the leading blogger, the leading voice in all of social media, in my opinion, the uh, Kevin MD blog. Check out his blog at kevinmd.com. And uh, he wrote a post. Now, you wrote a post. He wrote an article. He wrote an article for usatoday.com, and this was yesterday, I believe, and the column is uh, entitled this, quote, what's right for Buffett, not right for every man, unquote. And he starts out by saying this, there's been an uptick of elderly men in my primary care clinic asking about prostate cancer, perhaps because they heard of Warren Buffett's recent prostate cancer diagnosis. Patients are wondering why they should be screened. Other patients who have already been diagnosed are wondering whether they should receive radiation treatment for their prostate cancer, as Buffett is planning to do. It's very important to remember that what's right for Buffett uh, may not be right for everybody else. The first question is to ask, should an 81-year-old even be screened for prostate cancer? The evidence says no. I'm going to repeat that. The evidence says no. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, an independent panel of clinicians providing database practice guidelines, recommends against recommends against routine prostate cancer screening for healthy men of any age. Studies over the years, which have included participation of more than 300,000 men of various ages, have shown that harm from prostate cancer screening outweighs the benefits. Here's a quote from the chair of the task force, quote, if there is significant benefit, it should have been apparent by now, and it's not, unquote. There are huge healthcare cost factors as well. While the commission still calls for testing when risk factors are high, their data show that treating, that's good, they show that screening leads to widespread over-treatment. 
So, you know, again this week, you know, in the press, there have been questions about why people are doing, still doing prostate cancer screening in low-risk or no-risk patients. This made me think back to my post at familymedicinerocks.com a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago about the uh, Choosing Wisely campaign in which people, which I agree with, people forget that I agree with this campaign, but I, you know, I, I, wrote, I brought up some questions. You know, people don't know about Choosing Wisely. You know, just go to familymedicinerocks.com and, and search over there, Choosing Wisely. It is a campaign brought forward by many professional medical organizations, many professional physician organizations who are urging doctors like me, who are pointing the finger at doctors like me, saying, Mike Savella, you are ordering too many tests, and these are the tests that we think are worthless and do not order them. That's right. And I don't already, but it's still, I am still the problem. I am still the problem. And then I read an article like this. I read an article like this about Warren Buffett, you know, um, I'm glad he's feeling okay. He's going to get the appropriate treatment, but should he have gotten treated in the first place? And something I was asking myself, something that I'm asking all the choosing wisely organizations out there, where is the outrage? Where is the outrage directed against Warren Buffett's doctor? Because according to all you people, he shouldn't have ordered the test in the first place. He is part of this waste. He is part of this you know, blame that is out there who are ordering these, these tests that are deemed unnecessary. Where is the anger? Where is the outrage? Where is the statement from the Choosing Wisely organization or the Choosing Wisely uh, you know, membership organizations from the physician organizations coming out against this doctor? They're not there. I've looked. They're not there. And that's what gets me upset. These organizations, these choosing wisely people are, they're, 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 they're very free to point at, you know, paint a broad you know, brush and point at everybody and saying, you, especially you, Mike Savella, you are part of the problem. But yet, Warren Buffett's doctor? Do we hear anything from them? No. Not from these organizations. I read some other articles this week. There's one uh, from the Cleveland Plain Dealer, cleveland.com. This is a letter to the editor. And this says, this is a letter to the editor from uh, Wednesday, April 25. That will be today. The title is, Who Ordered Warren Buffett's Prostate Cancer Screening Test? This is from uh, an internal medicine physician. Dr. Diana Pye, P.I., from Westlake. It says on the website, I'm not calling her out. I mean, this is, this is it. This is, this is how her letter reads. Since Warren uh, Buffett, the CEO of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, argue, uh, argued <laughs> passionately for my plan to tax the rich, 
He has become one of my favorite octogenarians, so when I learned that he has been diagnosed with stage 1 prostate cancer, I was concerned, not because he has prostate cancer, but I couldn't fathom who would screen him for prostate cancer or any cancer in the first place. Prostate cancer screening is one of those gray areas in medicine, she writes. Even for younger men, the benefit of screening is marginal. The guideline from the USPSTF, the United States Preventative Service Task Force, states, quote, they recommend against screening prostate cancer in men age 75 years and older. That's right, kids. Uh, and uh, goes on to say, if I can find it because I lost it, uh, most likely Mr. Buffett will outlive his cancer with or without treatment and will die from cardiovascular disease and other competing causes like the rest of us, but the odds are he will suffer from the same side effects from his impending radiation treatment. I name some of the side effects of the treatment. No, not all screening is helpful. There are things in life left better unknown, or better left unknown. <laughs> I should stop multitasking as I'm reading these letters. <laughs> so there's somebody who's upset. How about that? This is from the New York Times, April 24, Tara Parker Pope. The title is, Older Men Still Being Screened for Prostate Cancer. Many men 75 years or older who are more likely to be harmed than helped continue to be screened or tested for the disease, despite federal guidelines strongly advising against the practice. The debate about screening older men for prostate cancer was reignited last week after reports that billionaire investor Warren Buffett, who is 81, said he received the diagnosis of early-stage prostate cancer after a routine blood test known as the PSA. Dr. Otis Webb Brawley, chief medical officer for the American Cancer Society, said that many doctors continue to test anyway because they don't want to have a conversation with their patients about life expectancy. Quote, if you decide to do a PSA, then you've got to have the conversation you really don't want to have with the patient, Dr. Brawley said. For doctors to do that, it's emotionally challenging. Talking to someone else about their mortality is really uncomfortable for doctors. They don't call out the uh, doctor of Warren Buffett here. Here's another article from doctorslounge.com, April 24, 2012. Title is USPSTF Guidelines Haven't Changed PSA Screening Practice. Despite the 2008, 2008 changes of the USPSTF recommendations against PSA screening in men 75 years or older, screening rates remain unchanged for men of all ages between 2005 and 2010, according to research letters published in the April 25 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association. The researchers found that PSA screening rates were unchanged over time in all age groups. PSA screening was unchanged between 2005 and 2010 in men 75 years and older, PSA screening was more common in men 75 years and older than in May ages, men age 40 to 49 or 50 to 59. 
But men age 60 to 74 years had the highest screening rate, 51.2% in this study. The author said this, quote, the discrepancy between USPF recommendation and subsequent practice patterns may reflect lack of guideline awareness, financial incentives, or patient-physician confidence in PSA screening, the authors uh, conclude. So this whole Buffett rule, the Buffett rule of prostate cancer screening, the Buffett rule is to get it done. And and I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the outrage to happen, which is probably not going to happen. Kevin Poe in his article said that this was a tremendous, I'm inferring here, he said that this is a tremendous Opportunity and teaching point for the country, my interpretation. He's saying that a a tremendous teaching opportunity was missed because this prostate cancer screening was done. And I would like to interject that this was a tremendous missed opportunity by the Caring Wisely people. Maybe I missed it. If I missed a statement from them, please send it to me. I will correct it. But I have not seen I have not seen any kind of statement from them. And when I wrote my post about, you know, I really don't think that people are going to follow the caring wisely guidelines, all I you know all kinds of hate mail. All kinds of hate mail, all kinds of negative comments, which I can handle, you know, because I knew that it would, you know, I knew what I wrote was not going to be very popular with people. But I take this illustration of this PSA screening. These these recommendations have been out for four years. Four years. 2008 recommendations to stop PSA screening. They still happen. He's carrying wisely guidelines that were announced. I think it's a good thing. Let me emphasize again. I agree with the Caring Wisely campaign. Do I think it is going to change physician behavior? No, I don't. And I direct all those people who sent me hate mail, all those people who gave me negative comments, all those people who came after me, I encourage you to write a blog post or you know, make a video or go on a podcast and call out the doctor of Warren Buffett and said, why did this guy do this? This guy is part of the problem. Is it going to happen? No, it's not going to happen. I can pretty much guarantee that it's not going to happen. But those people out there continue to blame me for the problem. And I don't even order this stuff. I don't order most of this stuff. I mean, I'm not going to say I don't order any of this stuff, but I do order some of it. But if you're going to make me part of the problem, then call out the other people doing it. I challenge you to do that. Those people are not going to do it. They're chicken to do it. They're not going to do it. But they'll blame me for it. And that's kind of my outrage. Where is the outrage? Where is, you know, people being upset with this doctor who ordered this PSA test? It's not going to be there. Why? Because Warren Buffett has prostate cancer, stage one, and they're not going to do it. It would be bad form. It would be, you know, not politically correct to do it. And it's sad. 
it's sad that you know people can universally blame doctors, but when a specific case like this comes up, you can hear a pin drop, and it's not really going to happen. So I just had to get off, get that off my chest. I feel a lot better now. Send all uh, hate mail. <laughs> FamilyMedicineRocks.com. I welcome your feedback. <laughs> I welcome those people who are going to yell at me after this monologue. But hey, you know, I call it as I see it. And, um, you know, that's what I think. If you want to tell me I'm wrong, please tell me I'm wrong. You know, I, 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 welcome, I welcome your feedback on that. Let me take one more break, and uh, then we will uh, close up the show here. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Sevilla. I go to familymedicinerocks.com, and we'll be right back. the Family Medicine Rocks podcast here on a Wednesday night here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. My name is Mike Sabilla. So just kind of closing up here, I just want to review what's going to be happening in the next week here on the show and on the uh, website and uh, on the podcast. And I'm very excited about this. I am, you know, viciously um, preparing and editing and re-editing and totally completely changing and starting from scratch my social media presentation, which will be one week from today in Kansas City, Missouri, at the AAFP National Conference of Special Constituencies meeting. It is the pre-conference. This, 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 this uh, talk, this lecture, this presentation is so good, they could not put it on the main program. They put it as a pre-conference because they did not want me to embarrass the rest of the presenters by putting it on the main program. So I am on the pre-conference program. Uh, it's going to be Wednesday evening in Kansas City. It's going to be awesome, uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I may, you know, uh, in tomorrow's show, I give you a little bit of a of a preview. Of it. I gave you a little bit of a preview of it last week, but as I'm talking with people, because I'm getting feedback on this, as I'm talking with people, as I'm getting new ideas, uh, I, I'm continually, continually reworking this presentation to make it the best that it can be. Because people have to show up because this could be the, the best presentation I've ever done or the worst one I've ever done, and I will never speak at an AFP event again. And likely, likely this will be my last NCSC meeting ever because people are going to be sick of me going to this meeting. So uh, there is no holds barred during this presentation. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be a good time. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm hoping I'm hoping to get full social media coverage on this. Um, I'm hoping to get uh, uh, my friends to help uh, tweet it out. Um, I may have a video camera there, videotaping myself uh, as I do uh, to maybe put it on the website uh, and all that, all that fun stuff. So that's going to be one week from today. But before that, tomorrow, uh, April 26, 2012, at 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central, here uh, at uh, Family Medicine Rocks, episode 253. 253 will be tomorrow. And uh, my guest will be uh, Dr. Jerry Tolbert from Kentucky. 
and uh, he's been on the show before. It will be his first NCSC meeting. It's very excited to talk to him about that, uh, and I'm going to be giving him his orientation here live on the show. And we're going to be talking about some other topics too. Well, we may talk about direct primary care. Uh, what is that? We'll talk about uh, that tomorrow, and we'll talk about his new business. You know, he uh, he. Uh, he started off his uh, his new practice there, his new business, and uh, we'll be catching up with him about that. And of course, he's a geek, so we'll be talking about some geeky stuff, uh, including him being a, a journalist, Jerry Tolbert journalist, uh, doing news reports. Uh, and what's that about? We'll talk about that tomorrow as well. Uh, coming up uh, this weekend, uh, on Sunday, 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 uh, April 29. Sunday, April 29, 2012, will be uh, show 254, and that will be the show with Dr. Robin Liu, uh, and uh, that will be uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, and I say Pacific because she's from the West Coast, and all my West Coast peeps uh, will be uh, particularly interested in that, uh, so uh, we'll have her uh, come on up. She, of course, is the uh, new physician representative to the AFP Board of Directors. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about her excitement uh, being on the board uh, and how much fun she's having. And the challenge, she issued a challenge uh, last fall uh, uh, regarding the uh, NCSC meeting next week, and uh, we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about her life moving. She used to uh, live in the middle of the country, and now she lives in the western part of the country, and we'll talk about her transition about that. So that will be Sunday uh, April 29. And also uh, next week, I haven't decided what day yet, but next week also, uh, uh, Dr. Jay Lee will be here. He is the chair of the NCSC meeting, the NCSC convener, as he is affectionately known as. And uh, we're going to be talking about how it is to uh, be the face and the voice of the meeting this year. Uh, He's been doing a great job with that. uh, But I know he's probably going to be getting a lot of emails from staff and a lot of emails from a lot of people uh, uh, you know, about the meeting and things. So he'll come on and uh, uh, hopefully he'll be able to spare a few moments for us and uh, let us know how it's going for him. Uh, and also, you know, I'm also trying to score this very important interview for uh, next week and uh, have my fingers crossed. I'm having my people uh, talk to their people. Uh, well, my people is me uh, <laughs> trying to uh, contact people for this very important interview. Thing. We'll see if that happens. We'll see if that happens. Uh, But I want to thank everybody. uh, Before we uh, close up tonight, I want to thank everybody for your continued support of me, continued support of my projects, continued support of this podcast, continued support of the website. Um, I know. I see the stats out there. And uh, people are are listening to the show. People are downloading the show. People are visiting the website. Um, I very, very much appreciate that. Um, I know, you know, that my content, my material is is aimed at a very – uh, at a very narrow niche or niche um, of people, basically the family medicine community. So I'm not, you know, I don't get all of the huge numbers that people get uh, in the popular uh, press and the popular culture. But I know you're out there. I know you're listening. I know you're reading things. I know you're interacting with me. And I very much appreciate the time that you take uh, to listen to the show, to read the post, to go to the Facebook page, because I know, especially as physicians, you know, time is your most valuable thing, and I very much appreciate the time that you take uh, to uh, listen to me <laughs> blabber on and on or read what I write or go to the Facebook page. So I very much appreciate all the support that I have for this show. So that's all I have for you this evening here. 
and uh, our next show will be tomorrow, episode 253 with Dr. Jerry Tolbert. It will be Thursday, April 26, 2012 at 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central, noon Mountain Time, and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. You see how I did that? That's because I am a professional. <laughs> uh, check out the digital library, my digital library with blog posts, audio podcasts, and videos at familymedicinerocks.com. Also, facebook.com slash famedrocks. And um, also, uh, follow me on Twitter, Dr. Mike Sevilla. And uh, that is all I have for you this evening. So thank you so much for joining me. It's just one week now until NCSC. Very, very pumped up about it. Very, very excited about it. If you are on social media and you want to help me, you know, uh, promote uh, the meeting, help me, you know, create some buzz, create some excitement out there. You know, you know, retweet what I tweet, or you know, uh, you know, share some things on your Facebook page. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. And what's going to be really great is that you know I want to have the entire country, or even in the entire world know about the meeting, have access to the meeting, have access to what we're talking about during the meeting. And how we're going to do that, that is with social media. That's all I have for you this evening. We'll see you here tomorrow uh, for the show 2 p.m. Eastern um, right here on Blog Talk Radio. My name is Mike Sabella. Thank you so much for joining me, and we'll talk to you all very soon. Good night, everybody. (laughs) 